And welcome back in another edition of the Stripe Show podcast. I'm your host, Travis Fulton. Thank you for making us part of your day. You see the guy next to me here. He is, uh, I think I'm busy, uh, all the stuff that I got going on. This guy next to me is probably the busiest man in golf, and particularly this week because, uh, well, it's a home game, right? You don't have to travel. And uh, he's sitting in his car. He's making some time for me right now as his son is at basketball practice. I can't thank you enough. Welcome in one of the top teachers in the game, Sean Foley. How you doing, buddy? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. That's the problem with a home game is that when I'm on the road now, I'm probably with one of my buddies, a couple of beers to cool down for the day, but now we're at basketball practice. (laughs) (laughs) All day at Bay Hill and then straight to the hardwood uh, with the little guy. It's definitely nice to be sitting down anyways. (laughs) What's Bay Hill look like? I the the, uh, I've been talking, I talked to Matt every earlier today on our uh, cash out with the coaches show. And um, he was saying the rough looks up a lot of sand in the bunkers he was saying. And um, you know, it doesn't probably not gonna be quite as difficult as last year. It was a beast last year, but uh, what's uh, what's the early indication with Bay Hill? Yeah, there's a lot of sand in the bunkers. Um, I'm not, I don't really remember the, 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 the bunkering before, but there's definitely a lot more sands, much harder to spin it out of the bunkers. Um, the rough is quite, it's, a. It, it's, it's obviously been, um, you know, seated. So the rough is quite high and then the greens are slower than I remember and a little more receptive, but with the weather that we typically get here where it gets sunny, windy and it gets warm most of the time on Sunday, sometimes you can see your reflection in those greens. So mm-hmm. I, uh, in honor of the King, I'm sure it's not going to be that receptive on Sunday. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, um, you, you got some weather coming in now, you know that, right? I mean, Thursday, Friday is going to be good Saturday, a little rain and then Sunday, the wind's going to howl. You're looking 25, you know, pretty sustained 20 to 25. So probably going to get a little more yeah. difficult as the, uh, as the week, as the week goes on. The difficulty with Bay Hill when it's windy is, you know, it's built within housing community. Mm-hmm. And so when you get the housing community, I think it's called the Val, I think it's called the Valsala effect, but it's based on the wind. And as it goes in, it's very, obviously it's very obvious um, at 12 on Augusta. So the wind comes down 11 hits the trees behind the green and by 13 and then comes back. So one player gets it downwind and the next player gets it into the wind. And that's what makes it so tricky. So I find anytime you are playing in housing communities, you get all these, technically the wind is not switching. So when mm-hmm. someone says the wind is switched, it's very rare that it goes from like Northwest to Southeast in an hour, but it feels like it's switching because it's basically just hitting things and then changing its momentum and direction. So I think that's what makes a place like Bay Hill and a lot of the Florida golf courses difficult in the wind is that, you know, up at a hundred feet, it's pretty constant, but it's not so much the fact that it switches or not. It's just the fact that it basically takes away from conviction and commitment because the player's unsure. Right. Right. Yeah. And you'll get, um, well, certainly at Bay Hill, like you said, there's a lot of houses there and then you get up the Ponte Vedra. It's not, not houses on TBC Sawgrass, but that wind can can move around, you know, a little bit as well at TPC Stadium. I want to get to a couple of your players that are playing in Bay Hill here in a second, but I want to go to the LPGA Tour 
as you've got some players out there as well. One of them is Lydia Ko, who uh, played good last week, uh, T-second last week right there at Lake Nona. And I saw you post, okay, on your Instagram, in your story, Lydia hitting a drive, and she was doing what I call the Humpty Dumpty, or a lot of people call it the Kyle Berkshire, right, where they kind of, those feet are moving, you can see the momentum going back and forth. And usually, usually you'll see that as a drill or something in the long drive like Kyle does. But Lydia put it in play, and I thought it was awesome. I just sat there and I watched that. I was like, that's the coolest thing that I've seen all year right there. I mean, where did she, did she get that from Kyle? Where did that come about? Yeah, Lydia had uh, well, like one of the focuses that we made when we started working together. Well, it was before we worked together, and she came to see me a couple times, and I just told her I wanted to get a lot stronger. Um, she was very slim and mm. um, wasn't doing anything in her swing to really generate any energy. So I basically said like 10 to 14 pounds of muscle would look great on you. Um, I think it's important that you do that. I'm a big Serena Williams fan. Um, you know, Lindsey Vaughn, you look at those girls and they were able to avoid the desire to match how they've been socialized, they should look. Mm-hmm. So to me, we're dealing with athletes and, and it's about being an athlete. So being more powerful, being faster, having good mobility, but it's just such a precognitive bias that we have in society that when women have biceps and triceps and shoulders that they don't look feminine. And and I personally don't feel that way. I think like there's a big difference between being fit and being skinny. And mm-hmm. I think being authentic to 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 what you are who you are um you could argue that tiger at 200 pounds that that didn't really suit his frame it was that's too big i mean you're talking about a guy who still has a 29 inch waist at 44 years old right 43 44 45 years old so i just felt like when you look at lydia back when she was playing probably her best golf um she was fit but she was by no means like skinny and slim so Mm -hmm. A golf club's not that golf club's not that heavy and it doesn't take that much strength to propel it and, and create a ton of speed. I mean, you've given many lessons to junior golfers who can really send it out there and they don't weigh 110 pounds. But overall, I think, you know, being able with the girls, they have kind of endless range and they've got lots of mobility and that's where the guys kind of lack. But what the guys do is they can stiffen tissue to create force. So mm-hmm. to me, a big difference in, in speed, I've got plenty of girls I've coached who can squat a lot of weight. They can front squat a lot of weight. They can, they can lift weight with their legs. But I think the real key is to strengthen the hands and the arms because a golf club's really not that heavy. And, you know, I think we've gone pretty overboard with ground reaction forces when I really, really think that, I mean, I remember watching Jason Zubak in 2002, um, in Canada, in Toronto at Glen Abbey. And I, I was the director of instruction there. So I, I was kind of his assistant for the day. He was hired to come in and hit it 400 yards down number 18 for every group that came by. And he got on a physio ball, like a Swiss ball on his knees and then teed it up really high and carried a driver 320 yards and started talking about the importance of the shoulders and hands in generating speed. And of course we know that you know, to me, a ground reaction force is it's kind of the earthquake that starts the tsunami. But I, I do believe that 
if you took a world-class player and cut his feet off and he learned to balance on his ankles, he'd still probably be able to play good golf. Um, if you cut his hands off, he's not going to play golf very well. <laughs> so I, I, I think that kind of shows in the importance of everything. If I could lose one or the other, I know which one I rather wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. And so Lydia started doing like rock, rock wall climbing, uh, four days a week for two hour stretches. So she went from barely being able to do a pull up to doing about five or six, which is quite strong. Mm -hmm. So she went and did an outing, a corporate outing, and it was Kyle Berkshire was there. And yep. so she was kind of watching him and, and, and being curious. And then she came back and she said, what do you think about this? And I said, yeah, you could do that for sure. That's, it's going to get you, what it does too, is it gets her to hit up about two more degrees on it. So it's not just club head speed, but it's also the conditions of her launch and her spin rate. Um, so when she does it, she gets up to around 17 at 2000, which just goes miles for anyone. And I think Taylor made said the magic number 17 degree launch at 1700 spin. So she pulls it out on par fives. Uh, and when she's done wind, um, and then she kept practicing it and practicing it and practicing it, and practicing it. Uh, and then she just started using it on the course. And the reason I posted that is because I just think there's such a great amount of courage yeah. that it takes to do that when it matters. And the thing about the word cour courage is it comes from the Greek word, which means kura, and kura means wholehearted. So wholehearted meaning like your love for the game. And that to me has to trump like my love for money and my love for trophies because we all started i don't know about you but i started paying to play golf um and now i'm around a lot of people who get paid to play golf and they're pretty miserable from it so it's funny how we paid for the you know we, we and you've been around enough you've been around enough to understand that so i, I just thought that I, I i have at at tournaments that i'm not at because i've met so many young coaches around the country i have what i call spies and so if I can't be there, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to get videos on my players all day. So yeah. my spies go out there. And so that was from one of my spots. Okay. So let me ask you this. <clears throat> so Lydia is, is a curious mind, right? And she has, you know, really for the last couple of years, I mean, she has moved around a little bit, different teachers, different ideas. It sounds like Sean and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, before she did started working with you, she was in pretty tough shape there. Like I think she was, perhaps caught in between. She wasn't playing very good golf um, and really in a low spot for her, um, you know, with her game and where she was going to go. You've been around a long time. You've worked with a lot of players. You know that that can happen, right? People can start to move around, get a lot of different ideas. And pretty soon you just kind of lose your DNA a little bit of who you are. And we know Lydia Ko has been a, is a wonderful player, right? I mean, she's had a lot of success and it's just kind of letting that kind of flourish. And like, as she's starting to do now under your tutelage, certainly a great week last week. And she looks confident um, as she's moving forward. So when you started with her, was that your sense that she was, she had a lot of thoughts going on. She was in a, in a very vulnerable position um, where, geez, I, I am not playing great golf. I do this for a living Perhaps I'm a little bit scared. Where do I go next? At what what depth was she at when she kind of came to you? Uh, 
I mean, there's no way to tell. I, I didn't really, like, I was always a fan of her, but I didn't really follow, like, the last three or four years. Um, and so, basically, you know, you move around from, like, method to method or idea to mm-hmm. idea. But, there, really, you know, I don't, I'm left at this point at 46 with really no belief system. Um, I would say it's all principled. So, you know, if I'm coaching Cameron Champ yesterday and then I go over to coach Ben on and remind myself remember to tell Ben to do the opposite of Cameron. So Ben is, Ben's a guy with a weak grip, he kind of cups it, he pulls down on it. Um, and then he stands up and he's incredibly good. So he's incredibly good. Um, mm-hmm. So you look at that and you're like, wow, this is a change of kind of a release profile. So, but when I worked, started with Ben, it was like, all right, Ben, what do you, you're, you're a great player. And he's the first person almost that, I've worked with who wasn't at the bottom of their career when I started with them. That's kind of been my MO the whole time I've been out there. I've had people come to me injured. Um, I've had people, you know, Justin Rose was like 87th in the world. It's impossible for that guy to be 87th in the world. Obviously we know about uh, Tiger. I started a year after everything happened in his life. Um, Hunter Mayhem with the short game issues originally. So it's, it's always kind of, Danny Willett came to me with a bad back. Sam Horsfield, yep. who I'm working with now, uh, the mm. same th- the same thing. So Sam Sam's been playing good, but it hurts. So, um, you know, when I asked Ben, "What is it that you want to get better at?" He said, "My short irons and my wedges. I can't keep them on the green. They spin too much, and I'm not very good at flighting the ball or keeping my driver down with less spin." So that becomes a function of loft and attack angle. Attack angle was fairly neutral, nothing crazy, but delivering a lot of dynamic loft. And it's the way that he does it, too. So, you know, that's when people say, like, what have you changed in the swing? Everything that we worked on making better was only connected to revenue. Like, it's all revenue. So I've got a bunch of kids that I coach that don't charge because their parents can't afford, you know, their parents can't afford it. That's a labor of love. What I do on the PJ Tour is straight business. It's not a labor of love at all. It's not. I'm not in love with leaving my family for two weeks in a row. And so right, right. that's what was needed. And then, so when, when I looked at Lydia originally, Travis, I just said, you know, we, we worked together for like two days. I showed her some videos of when she was in kind of her peak form. And then I basically said, look, I don't really have time right now um, to do this, but these videos, if you can get back to looking anything like that, um, you did it in the first place, so I'm sure you, you can do it again. And she said, well, I'm too across the line and my club face is too shut and my hips were too fast. And I said, yeah, you were contending every week when you were 16. How could someone have told you that was wrong? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it was kind of more very, very more like getting her to use introspection and get her to be reflect kind of on what she did. And I said that when you feel like you get closer to this um, and you get back in shape, then give me a call. So that was hmm. uh, that. And then she was gone for like a bunch of a bunch of months. Um, hmm. And that that was kind of it. It's like, all right, everyone's been giving you their ideas. Has anyone ever looked at what you did and then said, well, why don't you look back at some of that? And then so when she came back, it was back very similar. And so I just explained to her why it worked and when it goes off, why it goes off. And so, yeah, I mean, to take, to take that swing that she had and completely transform, it's totally unnecessary. And, yeah. um, 
that that's that's what we've done. She likes to hit this little baby peel fade. It just barely fades. Um, and, and so when she wants to fade it, obviously, because she stopped moving her lower body, she'd start tilting left and extending her spine too much, which is like way too much the end thing on social media, by the way. I think any great physiologist would go, no, that's too golfy. I call it too golfy because it's when golf is now not looked at as normal functional human movement, right? And athleticism. So the fact is that golf is, we're obviously bent over in a sagittal plane when we set up, but it's basically a transverse game, meaning it's a rotation game. So kind of the frontal planes that we see just come from the couple of flexion, extension, and rotation. So it basically a player like that who likes to fade, it can't be, can't be going back and mm-hmm. forth. Um, you can get away with that if you hit starting right draws, but that's, that's kind of, you know, that's the puzzle, right? So you have to look for the tumor. So you got a player who grew up the whole time with a shot face mm. um, and then rotated massively to make sure that it didn't close. And now they come to you and they have no lower body movement. Their upper body doesn't turn as much, but they're <laughs> tilting, extending, and now their left wrist is cupped. I mean, that's no chance. Like, that's just not, first of all, I've not really liked that for anybody anyways, unless you're in a greenside bunker. But I don't mind if someone's got a really strong grip and they have that look because it makes sense. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. But when people have fairly weak grips and their left wrist is cupped, I mean, you have two one hundredths of a second to make that thing match up. That's not <laughs> that's a really tough ask. Happen. So <laughs> that's a tough ask. <laughs> that's that's tough for anybody. And that's really tough for anybody. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's the trick of the range. Right. Give me eight seconds to hit a shot. My subconscious will sort it out and then I'll go, oh, I figured it out. Go on the first thing and realize I didn't figure it out. So basically it's been, it's been kind of, it's been kind of more that way. And, you know, just getting her to understand, like to forgive herself, like you were number one in the world at 17 years old. Do you, do you remember what you were doing at 17, Travis? No, kind of. Um, I barely remember I mean, success, what I was doing success. a couple weeks ago with a six and a five-year-old John in my house. So um, 17, I would have to think about it for a minute, <clears throat> but I, but I, I'm with you. Like to me, a successful, it's, 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 a, it's, and, and she's this lovely, she's just this lovely soul. She's just one of the mm-hmm. sweetest people I've ever met and there's nothing phony about it. And so um, she's somewhat private. Mm-hmm. And guess what? That all goes out the window. And then all of a sudden people start taking advantage of you. You start playing poorly. And, you know, the same New Zealand press that lifted you up on their shoulders has now dropped you down. They've got new articles to write about. And, and guess what? You're only 17. So you, you probably read that and think that what people think about you matters. But as you get older, you know, I heard there's a saying at at 22, you think people care. Um, at 42, you realize that you don't care what they think. And then at 65, you realize they were never thinking about you in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, so it's been about 15% technique and Mm -hmm. like 85% mentorship. And that's it, that, you know, that's, that's really, that that to me is really what a lot of players need. And that's why I think as coaches, you know, our skill set and our philosophies and our understanding have to be able to encroach everything from physiology to geometry to physics to kinetics, but also to neuroscience and philosophy and, and those things as well. So it's 
like I said, when I've had all my players come to me, most of them have been at the bottom of their career. So not only are you adopting bad bad technique and bad understanding, but also poor self-esteem and poor mindsets. So it's, uh, and I love it. You know, I I feel like it's like being a Sherpa on Mount Everest. So even Sherpas are going to get frostbite. And and I think that that's, (laughs) the climb to me is like so significant. And then you get to the summit and you're like, eh. So I guess there's something sick in me that I enjoy doing that, you know? Well, I've known you for a while. I've always kind of thought that you you, you enjoy the grind. I, I don't like, I'm not sure you ever want to get to the top, right? Because then you just keep, then you, and it's over. You know, like you, you, you want to have that satisfaction when, you know, Justin Rose wins the U.S. Open and Hunter Mayhem wins the WGC. And, you know, like th- that feels good, right? Like those Tiger wins five times with you. Like those, that you got to have that. But at the end of the day, we're, we're kind of wired the same way. Like that grind and, and, and continuing to get up every day and try to move the needle the right way and build something and really help. I think in Lydia's case, and I'm in, and again, I was kind of speculating a little bit. I don't, I just, you know, the people that I know and listen to when she got with you, like there was like, there was uh there was some confusion. Right. And like, where do I go now? Because I've kind of worked myself a little bit into a hole here and I need some guidance. And as you said, some mentorship and perhaps that maybe hit her differently, Sean, because she may have been thinking, gosh, I thought he was going to rechange my entire swing. But yet you're like, look, let's get back to what you used to do really well. And here's, you know, starting with your physique and getting stronger and, and then creating that right mentorship and, and, and direction. All of a sudden she's, she's starting to flourish again. So it's, uh, it's really interesting to talk just the coaching aspect, not technique, but just listen to you and the guys that do it out there. The coaching and the real raw, authentic things that happen between player and coach, especially in the beginning stages when the player is coming to you, like you said, kind of a bit broken, right? They need help. I do this for a living and that's a big responsibility. And, um, and you've done a good job with that. And it'll be fun to follow Lydia. And I just love when I saw that, I don't know what it was, Sean, when I saw her hit that shot, I just thought to myself, Lydia Ko is going the right way. You know, like, she just looked kind of like she did when she was younger. And the fact that she put that in play was like, that's the furthest thing from technique. I'm going to, I'm going to hit this ball with some serious speed. Watch this. You know what I'm saying? It just, it was kind of all encompassing for me. Cause I love Lydia. I think the LPG tour needs her. And when I saw that, I was like, damn, she was like, that, that's the last person I thought I would ever see that from. And here she is putting it in play. So I thought that was pretty cool. Let me, let me ask you about, um, Justin Rose, you've got, so you got four players, don't you? And Bay Hill, you got Justin, you've got Ben on, you've got Cameron Champ, and you've got Danny Willett. Is that right? Yeah. Those are, yeah, those are the four that are playing in Bay Hill. So you and Justin have been together for a long time and have had great success. He was the number one player in the world um, when he was with you. And, you know, I'm just curious, Sean, wouldn't he, so this whole COVID thing hit and it hit at this time last year. Uh, next week, Players Championship, everything shut down after Thursday, and I was out there watching, and the and things started to come across, and here we are now, one year later. When he came back in June, Justin down in the Bahamas decided, you know, I'm just going to kind of go about this by myself, which I thought was kind of an interesting move because you guys have been together for so long, had so much success, but now he's kind of back. You're you're kind of helping him here a little bit again. Is that right? And putting some pieces back together. 
pretty much, Travis, I think that any of us will be lucky enough to have two or three relationships that last our whole life. And that's not even yeah. with the people we with. For a lot of people, that could be their family. Um, basically, we weren't really getting it done before it all stopped uh, anyway. So mm -hmm. I think at a certain point, it's it's kind of like, you know, I still I still feel like I know exactly what works for him um, as good as anyone ever will know. But, you know, sometimes, you know, people just stop hearing each other. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, Ro Rosie got to number, I think we started, he was about 87 and he hadn't won on tour yet. And then after all that, there was just so much success. And, you know, you get to number one in the world and you're trying to be like you and I are, trying to be a father, manage a family, do this and that. Now, with being number one comes other things, new sponsorships, ideas, like it all, it's all taking time away. And so it gets to a point where you almost become a victim of your own success because time management becomes difficult. And so what you did when you were kind of, we always like, we were always under the radar. I remember Justin would be third place in a tournament and he wouldn't even be on the notables on the golf channel. So we were always able to be really sneaky and not do millions of interviews and all these different things. And then, you know, as he became, I'd say he had about 16 months there where he played golf that was close to like what Tiger had done, you know, six wins, 29 top tens and 34 starts at, you know, almost 40 years old, um, wow. you know, against a field of guys. I mean, Victor, Ho Victor Hovland and Matt Wolf and Colin Morikawa, Justin Thomas, these guys are tough to beat because these guys just have golf and they maybe have a girlfriend or what have you, but you know, it's not kids, it's not all those things. And so it, it gets, it becomes the, the total balancing act. And I think that, you know, what happens is that like my left ankle and my right knee, I've had problems with for a couple of years and people say, well, what happened? It's just like a casualty of success. I have literally humped more miles on a golf course than anyone in the world in the last 14 years, because part, part of my deal was not just to watch players on the range. I mean, if I got paid on the range, I would be a billionaire already. So it it was doing all the time on the course with the players to see what's going on as far as like how do they what happens into the wind uphill lies downhill lies all just everything how are they mm -hmm. reacting to shots where are they at and so in doing so i mean i pretty much would get to the course at six in the morning and get off my feet for the first time at like 8 30 at night and so i don't think there's any way to do what i did without ending up having knee issues <laughs> it's just like yeah. it's like someone someone says you know basically how can we get these players to not have lower right side issues in their back and i'm like well if they're not good at golf then they won't have back issues it's like you're bending over and you're rotating there's no way to do that without at some point having doesn't mean you need to have surgery but you're going to have some issues it's like there's not a history of a hundred meter runner who has not pulled both hamstrings. It's just because the hamstring is on the threshold mm -hmm. of being torn when they're moving at that speed. So it, you know, it, 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 it equates that way. So with Rosie, I mean, Rosie's like my little brother, right? I mean, I love the guy. We've had so many great moments and, you know, and I appreciate that he, that he had to do what he had to do and <laughs> just realize that, um, you know, he, he wants to spend the last five years of his career around people that he loves and cares about. And, you know, we're just kind of starting to get back to the, 
kind of the basics of what we always did. So our main focus right now is this is setup got all out of whack. Um, and I'm big into posture and big into setup. And I think you have to be because golf is really the only sport where you can choose how you stand. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm kind of a stickler for those types of things because I know what these players are so great at is they're just unbelievable at being able to be chameleons to the environment they're in. So I, I call the British open the swing destroyer because every year we go to the British open, the wind is always like 30 or 40 into off the left and Monday normally goes pretty good, but by Wednesday, <laughs> everyone's standing almost backwards. You know what I mean? Yeah, completely. <laughs> and the problem is, is like, it, you know, it, it, it feels, it actually gets the ball to start more right on the left to right wind. So it's not helpful. So, you know, understanding that these that these people are just super learners in the environment mm -hmm. that they're in, you know, you, you 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 have to be really aware that if they aim right for like six days in a row, they'll find a way to get it back online and they'll just keep aiming more and more right. So they might find a sweet spot where it works out, but they'll just keep going more and more and more one way. And and that's why I mean I've literally flown across the world. I've flown to China once to see two players. And then got there and realized that one was aimed about 20 yards left with the ball too far back in his stance. And the other one was aimed about 20 yards right with the ball too much forward in his stance. And so I made them promise me that I will not ever fly for 27 hours to fix ball position and alignment. But <laughs> as you know, playing yourself and then coaching, mm -hmm. I mean, how many times do you pitch up at the lesson tee and after you do your little, you know, you know, you, you do your little analysis of what you're looking at. I mean, how many times are people like aiming well for what they intend to do? It's just very rare. It's just super rare. So it, it doesn't matter if you have a high powered sniper rifle, if the sight's wrong, it's just, you still shoot, but it's not going to go where it needs to. So uh, little things like that, they kind of got off a lot. Um, and then we've kind of have a couple old feels that aren't really feels uh, the players think they're feels, but it's like a real principled aspect. Um, you know, Rosie, Rosie grew up like emulating Nick Faldo. So, you know, he sets the club early and he gets it a little too open and then he gets ahead of it, hangs back and squares it. And some of the greatest shots he's ever hit, he's done that. And I don't mm -hmm. mind when they, it, it's very rare. Do we see an Instagram post of someone's, someone's player on the 17th hole of a tournament with a right to left win because they hit a great shot, but is by no means sexy in slow motion. So <laughs> we're just, I think the problem is we've become consumed with vanity. Yeah. Um, you know, at that. So Lydia, not really allowed to look at videos. Uh, not a good idea for Justin and Danny Willett to look at videos. It's not really that great idea for any of them because they can literally hit an unbelievable shot and then see the video and start to question, like, why is that there? I don't like that. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. And it's like, well, you just hit it and twirled it and said it was felt amazing. And now you're discrediting the feel that you had because it doesn't look right to you. Do you know what I mean? Like, yep. that's that's not a good way to do business. No. Yeah, we could, um, geez, we could talk about that all day. You know, the idea of player hits a shot um, and they look at it and they're like, they start picking it apart, right? And in your mind and, and where you've set out to go and react to the ball flight and here's what we want to do and things are good. And then they start 
they start picking it apart, right? And then that use of technology, whether it's the video or maybe it's the numbers from TrackMan, they start to, you know, they start to drift, right? They start to go somewhere where you don't want them to go. And that's when the technology starts to, you know, not be effective, right? In the way that, uh, that you want to use it. And it's a balance. And my question to you is, you know, when it first came out, Sean, like TrackMan and uh, Force Plates and all this stuff, are you, do you use it, the same amount now versus when you first started using it or is it a little bit less? Is it a little bit more? Is it, you know, kind of take me through this evolution of technology now, right? 3d video, um, force plates, uh, launch monitors, right? All this stuff started coming about. Where are you at with it now? And in, in with the use with its play, your players versus maybe when you first got it. Yeah. I mean, I still use it all the time, but, like if you're with the same players all the time and then you realize patterns be, are very consistent, human beings are very automated. Mm-hmm. Um, not going to see a player who's normally two degrees to the right with their path, with their irons, all of a sudden be five left. Um, I think it's important to have it on. I try to have it on each week with my guys just to make sure. Um, but most players, when you see them out there with a the track, man, they've got, you know, a, they've got like, a, they're hitting drivers. They have a launch and spin number on the, iPad or they have a carry number. Um, Mm -hmm. Other ones, you know, players like Bryson look more into other numbers. Uh, But for the most part, it's normally just for carry distance with most Mm -hmm. players. Um, I think the the thing about some things like 3D and ground reaction forces is we'll see someone's ground reaction forces be a certain way or their 3D be a certain way. But, you know, some of my best friends in the business are people like Dr. Craig Davies, who's one of the great sports chiros golf um, to me, probably the HD to listen to is obviously Mark Bull, um, Sasha McKenzie. So the problem with Craig is, you know, Craig basically understands anatomy and physiology better than anyone I've ever met. So we can see that someone's not creating enough torque in their right foot. And so we say, hey, you need to have more torque in your right foot. Well, look, they're pronated, they're valgus, and their tibia is internally rotated. They're not going to do that. If they do that, they're going to shear their hip out, so they're never going to do that. So those are the those are the guys that, you know, we see something on 3D and it looks really obvious, you know, you're firing out a sequence. Um, and then they just watch them walk and go, well, they're walk out of sequence. So what, what were you intending to do with their golf swing? Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. to me, if I had one tool to use, it would be a track man because ball flight to me is the key to the game, right? Um and then the problem with 3D and things like that is that we're hitting into a net off a mat in a studio with the stuff with a ton of stuff on us. And, and that's great. I, I appreciate that. Gears and things like that are amazing. They're amazing uh, uh, coaching tools and ways to understand the golf swing better as a coach. But I need that stuff on them when in the cut line with two holes left. I need... <laughs> I need to get data and feedback from when they're, you know, in battle, because I'll tell you what, if we put 3D on a player on a driving range on a perfect day, the movement of their pelvis or the direction of it moving away and back towards the target, and then we get them in a 20 mile mile an hour wind, I just guarantee it's just so much different. So. Much, I, I love all that stuff because, you know, my good friend James Light said, why would you guess what you can measure? And that's bang on. And if you and I tonight were sitting on the couch and we're feeling chest pain, 
are, and we're not going to take the doctor's word for it because he's going to put us through a series of tests to find out what's going on. So it's amazing how the golf world and, and a lot of people on TV will talk about, you know, the games become too scientific and too this, but if any of them had a real problem, they would really want to have an MRI. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They, they, they want an MRI. So I think that that's imperative, but that being said, Mickey Wright and Lee Trevino and Ben Hogan and Sam Snead and Jack Nicholas and all those players became who they were without any of it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, a, you know, it, once again, it's like anything, right? Everything is based in a is based in a balancing act and you can get too driven by one by one of them. Um, you know, a lot of shots that a player's hit to a right or a left pin. If you saw the numbers at impact, you'd be like, eh, don't work on that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> the, yeah. the path is one, one left and the face is four open and they've hit it Healy and low in the face and it's got the two feet and the gallery goes crazy because that's kind of what that shot called for. It wasn't calling for perfect zeros, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, so you I, think I would, I would, I wouldn't practice that, no. <laughs> but I want to be neutral enough that I'm able to do anything and everything I can. Yeah. Do you think people realize, you know, when they watch the sport, okay, and watch these players go to concession, right, this beast of a golf course, and Colin Morikawa puts up 18 under. I mean, it's just like, what? You know, like minus 18 that you see on this tour right now, and you're standing there and you're watching them, is just proof, right? I mean, the skill that you're watching on the PGA Tour, on the range, on the course, just incredibly high level. We know that. Is it, um, what impresses you the most? I guess is where I'm going with this. What impresses you the most when you're standing there on the tour and you're like, my God, I mean, these guys are so good at this. What is it? Uh, Like launch direction, both vertically and horizontally. So just the ball of right or left. I think is, is massive. It's amazing. Especially when you, when you know what's happening with the body and then you know what's happening in between the hands and you know, what's happening to the shaft and you know how fast the club face is closing. That is what's incredible. But I will say Colin Morikawa, if, if, if he just continues to do what he's doing, um, he will be his generations, Ben Hogan, that guy, He's so good. It's, it's mind blowing to me. Um, Mm -hmm. how, I mean, talking about a guy when he was getting fitted for clubs, his proximity to the hole with a six iron was closer than a PGA tour players with a pitching wedge. So, (laughs) I mean, you have, you obviously have, you have less loft, you have a club moving faster. There's a number of reasons that should not be possible. And, um, I just think the guys, He's, he's, yeah. He, he, every week he seems to be first or second in strokes playing iron in, in strokes gained iron play. I mean, if he if he becomes a slightly better than average putter, he's going to win six or seven times a year. That's just just the math. Um, yep. Four plus four putting is what he was last week. Those boys are in trouble out there because <laughs> his ball no, striking it'll win, is. He'll win every week, and and you know yeah. he. He, he just really understands himself as coach Rick Sessinghouse. Um, it's kind of been his mental performance coach the whole time. They've done a great job. Like Colin knows where it's at. Um, 
He's basically virtually not changed a swing since he was 11 or 12 years old. He's just got better at it. And there's something to be said about that. You know, like I did a speech to the Canadian PGA a couple of years ago. And my model was Jim Furyk, just so surprised about, well, you know, he, he doesn't, he's not on plane and he doesn't really have much lag. And I'm like, well, maybe those aren't important. So if we know where we're looking, I, I don't think I would ever teach lag to anyone and I'd never teach anyone to be on plane um, pitch shot. But for the most part, I mean, we look at the great ball strikers of all time. The sweet spot doesn't go up and down on the same line. Um, it just really doesn't. So I think that someone like a Furyk, who doesn't look correct, uh, doesn't look like Adam Scott, but honestly, in the last 15 years, he's gained more strokes in approach than Adam Scott. So, and using like, and probably using two more irons, right? So there's something to be said about, you know, a kid comes to you and he's got kind of a funky move, but it's funky and it's, it's funky in how you've been, how you were precognitively, how you were biased to think about a golf yeah. swing. Right. But then you you watch it and it's efficient and it's effective. There's something to be said about say it's inefficient, but the player does it so much that they become efficient at it. It's no longer inefficient. So if it's not hurting them um, and they're able to hit every single shot, moment of impact is most important. But the yeah. most important time, the most important time is transition. So, you know, you'll see these things on Instagram where they'll show a backswing of like the top five players in the world. And they look really different. You, you you get them when left arm is parallel on the downswing and they all look really similar, mm-hmm. <laughs> like really similar. Yeah. You'll see different base positions based on obviously different grips and what have you. But yeah, you can't you can say there's a thousand ways that a swing can look, but there's definitely not a thousand ways that it can work. Absolutely. And, you know, I just keep going back to listening to what you did with Lydia, probably the the DNA of there is a DNA of a player to some degree. You know, like kind of what makes him go, what makes him click. And and I think is, boy, you know, with all the information and availability they have and they start making money, like, you know what, I'm going to just continue to get better and more information and then they get different ideas. And pretty soon they just kind of, you know, they can lose their way pretty quickly, as you know. But yeah, that DNA, man, I, I just, I, I think it's there, you know, and I think you have to, you got to be, you got to be careful with that. And I, I just, you know, I, I never my career never seek to go out and teach like, like you did. I I don't think my attention span was suited to be out there for the hours that you guys are out there. You know, like I just didn't, I didn't think that I would be able to do that, you know, and really be a service to the player over 12, 13, 14 hours a day. But I did work with a few that were in town, you know, that would live here. And one of them, worked with Fred Funk for a long time when he first, he got a surgery and he came back and I kind of helped him just get back to some of the things that he would, that he would do. He kind of started moving off the ball and he had a thumb surgery and he was kind of flinching. There was a few things he kind of got in bad habits. So we went back and just said, look, here's what you used to do. You're one of the straightest players of all time. Ever. And there was a day where he, he looked at the, he looked at his left wrist at the top and, you know, Fred was kind of a little flexed, you know, at I the top. There wasn't, and he said, there wasn't as many straight hitters like that. No, no, no. He was kind of there. And he goes, you know, that's too, that's too arched. That's too flexed. I got to get that out. And I said, Fred, so you want to change that? Then I'm out of here. You want to go more to there? We're not messing with that. And then, you know, I remember when, when launch monitors first came out, I was working with them and, you know, we started learning about attack angle and, you know, these kinds of things and we can maximize. And Fred was always one degree down, always. 
Always. Straightest driver of all, one of the straightest, him and, him and Calvin P. I mean, the dude could close his eyes and hit it 268 right down the middle. Um, and he was one degree down every single swing. He's like, well, if I'm one degree up, I can hit, you know, what does that mean distance-wise? Oh, we'd have the conversation. If I'm two degrees up, well, pretty soon, as you know, Fred, you know what he starts to do, or Sean, he starts to do some different things to, to get the attack angle more up. And all of a sudden, this dispersion starts to, you know, get a little bit bigger. Sure, it's another 10 yards, another 12 yards, but he's got this little block going once in a while and, and this and that. And you realize pretty quickly, like, you know, you start messing with that stuff with the, the straightest driver of all time. And I thought to think to myself, gosh, I'm going to mess up the straightest driver of all time with the driver by trying to take his attack angle from one degree down to two degree up. But point of the story was, is like, look, he, he couldn't go out and play with that and any in play anywhere near the level and consistency that he saw for years and years um, with the driver. And a lot of it was just predicated, you know, he's flex one degree down. That was his deal. You know, and we start messing with that and that DNA, man, it was like the boat just started going like this. Like you could just see in the, his wheels are, you know, it's like, gosh, that feels more powerful, but and it's going further, but I can't play tournament golf like that. And you got to shut that down quick. Yeah. Plus I, I just think like, you know, just, uh, quickly here before we conclude is degrees up wouldn't really markedly make a difference because at the distance that he hit it even if he hit it 10 yards further if he missed more fairways he'd be in the rough and the fact is is he's not that long of an iron player either so now he's right. long irons out of the rough so it's like there's a when rosie and i went and did operation 300 to carry at 300 and then we got the most we ever got was like 320 um it made sense for him to to challenge it to get slightly longer. And we were lucky because the year that we drove it the best, we were 307 at 66% accuracy. And mm. um, so it made it, it it made sense to do it like that. But people say to me all the time with Cameron Champ, they're like, you know, he hits three down on it. And I'm like, yep, it's three down on it. Well, mm. what happens if he hits up on it? Well, it goes 370 in the air. Well, why doesn't he do that? Well, because it goes out of bounds at least half the time. So it's, it's like, imagine if you could, imagine if you could launch a ball at seven degrees at 3000 spin and carry it 320 now 27 degrees. So it's going to go 50 yards on the ground. I mean, kind of our saying is that the ball doesn't curve when it's on the ground. And <laughs> it's just amazing how people, you know, as Bryson started it further and further, they said, well, mm -hmm. what if Cam, I mean, if, if Cam was using a four degree driver and hitting 10 up on it, it would go you're starting to get into, I mean, Cameron with a year of conditioning and the right type of stuff. I mean, he'd be a world long drive competitor. Uh, mm -hmm. He's so straight at how far he hits it. I want to get rid of that. Cause that's <laughs> yeah. Now we don't, you know what? We work very hard to not do it on wedges. Uh, mm -hmm. A little bit is fine. Um, I think you can really, really spinners like that, but, we're trying to get the release softer and not be as aggressive in transition, but it's almost taken us 10 years to get to world-class wedge numbers because it'd be like trying to get Usain Bolt to run the 800. I mean, every time he came back in from the track, he'd say, coach, how was the first lap? And you'd go, it was too fast. And he'd say, well, mm -hmm. I felt like I was going slow. You know what I mean? Yep. Wow. It's fascinating stuff. Great insight, man. I, um, I really appreciate it. And, um, Let's let's get it going, right? We need him. You know, I, I'm I'm a big Rosie fan, you know that. And um, I had dinner with him actually, like 
four years ago at this event, uh, played in it there in, in MasterCard in the, in the, uh, in the pro. In fact, I played with Rory. It was a year that he won. And, and then I had dinner with MasterCard and Rose was there. And I, I texted you and I was like, man, this dude is the best. Like Justin right. Rose like, is a world-class individual. And I just, I love, I love watching him play the game. And I'm, I'm really happy that you guys are working together again because you guys have been a great team. And um, I have no doubt that he'll get back on track and keep up the, uh, the good work with Lydia. You got to send me that video, man, of Lydia, of going. Let I me. got a bunch. I got, I got, I got tons of stuff. Yeah. Okay. All right. I appreciate it, Sean. Hey, have fun this week. Enjoy the home game, and I'll probably see you up at TPC next week. Let's take a second to talk about the guys and girls over at Encore Golf. Encore has earned a reputation of having the most cutting-edge technology in their golf balls that the industry has seen in quite some time. Their team in Buffalo, New York, is changing the script of golf technology through the perimeter-weighted designs, use of high-density particles, and even a nano-transitional layer in their latest creation, which offers players enhanced accuracy and control for every shot on the course and extreme velocity off the tee. They already have their award-winning Elixir and Avant 55 golf balls, but the new Vero X1 is the highest performance ball to date with their full suit of golf balls. They are transforming the game for players of all skill levels. Visit EncoreGolf.com slash Travis Fulton for more details about their products that are revolutionizing the game. Now back to the Stripe Show podcast. 